Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome, my friends, to this episode where we will take a look at the PMP exam and break it down to better understand the lay of the land. It starts off like this. We have project management, which is a very wide topic. Project management can be broken down into two categories, largely, right? We have an agile approach to project management, and we have a predictive approach to project management. Okay, now, as you study for this exam, it is important that you master the concepts associated with agile and predictive. The reason for that is both of these will contribute to another flavor of project management known as hybrid. But in order to get good with hybrid, you need to understand agile and predictive fluidly. Let's jump into the world of agile first. Now, for agile, you need to understand this. When we say agile, you need to understand that agile is predominantly all about a mindset to the world around you. So think agile, think mindset first. This mindset will, at the end of the day, affect your behavior. So instead of just thinking agile, you will start being agile in your behavior. And ultimately, it will become a culture in your world. And that's why when I teach Agile to my students, I first of all begin with the Agile Manifesto at Agile Manifesto.org. That's your starting point. You need to understand the four values and the 12 principles. The four values at a very high level focus you on human interaction as being super important first over processes and tools, being focused on getting a working product as opposed to comprehensive documentation. We place more value on individuals and interactions. We place more value on working product. We place more value on customer collaboration over contract negotiation. We place more value on responding to change over following a plan. This philosophy drives everything else. And in the 12 principles, I won't go into all of them, but the number one principle is our highest priority is to satisfy the customer. So when we talk about agile, we are so hyper-focused on our customer's satisfaction. Everything that we do is propelled towards customer satisfaction through delivery of value, okay? Now, for your exam, there are a number of things that you want to focus on as you read Agile, as you study Agile. I'm gonna put some of these here. Number one, you gotta understand, as I said, manifesto. The values and the principles. Four values, 12 principles. Next thing I want you to really hammer down on is your understanding of Scrum. Scrum has a 3-5-3 configuration. Scrum is a framework. You need to understand that this is a framework. 
okay? A framework that is flexible and fluid for you to add things within certain limits, okay? I go more into that in the class, but at this level, you need to understand agile is a mindset. The manifesto values and principles guide us to be agile in all that we do. Scrum as a framework helps us embody the principles and the mindset and to practice those things through a framework. Now, in addition to Scrum, I need you to understand the concept of Kanban, because Kanban is another framework, if you will. And through this framework, we want to limit our whip. We have a display, the Kanban board. You need to understand what the Kanban board is all about. The Kanban board is a transparent way of showing what is happening at any point in time, similar to the concept of the backlog used in Scrum. As you study for this exam, my friends, you also need to add your understanding of lead time and cycle time. And as you study Kanban, this will help you. Now, remember, as we are studying Scrum, there's going to be other things that come into play within Scrum. So even though this is not technically part of Scrum, you need to understand the concept of user stories for your exam, right? You need to understand what this 353 is all about. So we're talking about the sprint, sprint planning, the daily Scrum, the sprint review, and the sprint retrospective. Understand all those. You also should understand things not talked about here, like in the world of the PMI, they talk about backlog refinement in the Agile Practice Guide. Understand that. Understand the concept of servant leadership. Understand the concept of backlog preparation. These are things talked about in the Agile Practice Guide. And for that reason, I am going to add to the list of things I want you to do here, the study of the Agile Practice Guide. So let's do that, the study of the Agile Practice Guide from the PMI, okay? I also want you to add to this as you study Scrum, I want you to study the Scrum Guide. And you can get the Scrum Guide at the website scrumguides.org scrumguides.org this will help you understand scrum as presented by the co-creators of it so agile goes deep okay now when it comes to the concept of predictive this could be tough if you don't have good tutelage about it as you study predictive, the first thing you need to understand are the core definitions. And to be quite honest with you, these were very well covered in PMBOK 6. It gives you such a good base. Now, failing PMBOK 6, you can take a look at process groups a practice guide because you will not find PMBOK 6 anymore. It's no longer in print. And even if you're a member of the PMI, you will not find it to download. What you're going to find is the seventh edition, which has its place, right? The seventh edition is, of course, where you want to go to to understand the 12 principles, okay, of project management. Understand the 12 principles in PMBOK 7. All right. Now, I have a book where I tackle predictive really deep, and this is called Project Management Essentials. I'm going to endeavor to put a link below. If you don't see it, please alert me, and I will put it there for you because predictive is a beast. 
And it's hard to navigate if you don't have expert help. So core definitions is key. Understanding the 12 principles at that high level comes next. After you've understood the concept of the definitions, project management is the application of knowledge, skills, tools, and techniques to project activities to obtain an outcome through the delivery of a product, service, or result known as a deliverable. So you got to get good with your PM 101. What is a program? What is a project? What is an operation? What is a portfolio? These are things that are going to help you. And then you get into understanding of project documents like a benefits management plan, a benefits register, the concept of a business case. These are things that are going to help you as you navigate this world of PMP prep, okay? Now, beyond the understanding of the core definitions and the 12 principles, you want to begin building some very firm understanding of the framework, which is known as the five process groups. Five process groups are, I prefer eating mangoes chilled. What does this stand for? This is just initiating, planning, initiating, planning, executing, monitoring and controlling, and lastly, closing. And this is the five process groups, which is a, in my mind, a legacy framework from the PMI, which was so brilliantly crafted and has stood the test of time over three, probably even four decades going on now. And this has given people a very solid framework to build their understanding of project management. Let's go over it very quick. Initiating is all about authorization, right? You gotta understand if your project is truly authorized and you want a project charter, that's your major output. Your project charter is like the marching orders, official marching orders from the project sponsor, right? Planning is all about taking this charter and breaking it down further into a solid project management plan. Some people refer to this casually as a project plan. The reason why the word management is so important is this is a plan for how to manage everything on the project, not just how to do the work, but how to actually manage scope and schedule, cost, quality, resources, communications, risk, procurement, and stakeholder. You know, So when you really want to understand what is in the project management plan, there's a mnemonic that I have for people, and the mnemonic is, I saw six chipmunks quietly roasting coffee, reading poetry stories. And this just stands for integration, scope, schedule, cost, quality, resources, communications, risk, procurement, and stakeholder. All of these need to be planned. How do we integrate? What is the scope? How do we flesh it out? What is the schedule? How do we manage it? How do we manage cost, quality, all that stuff? That is what we do in planning. But we'll come back to these areas of knowledge eventually. When it comes to executing, what you're doing here is carrying out the plan. You are carrying out the plan, the project management plan you're doing. And one of the things you're going to get out of here is, of course, your deliverable which is a product, service, or result of some sort. Going over to monitoring and controlling, what we're doing here is check, 
to make sure everything is going according to plan. And if not, act. This is your check-in and your acting. And as a result of check-in, you might need to do things differently. Act. There are times you need to get approval before you do things differently. You call that the change request process. The change request process is very straightforward. If someone asks you for a change, right? They ask you for a change. If they ask you verbally, you have to put it into a formal change request. And then that formal change request needs to be reviewed. And depending on the project, it should first be reviewed by you, the PM. You want to analyze it. You want to do an impact analysis. And then that impact analysis could go to a change control board for their own review. And the change board is a group of people that are put together to effectively manage change on the project, especially significant projects that require big decisions, financial and otherwise. Ultimately, the change control board will approve or reject or put it on hold or into some pending status. But ultimately, a decision will be made whether it's approve or reject. So it's either going to be approved or it's going to be reject. If it's approved, then you do it. If it's rejected, and of course you don't do it, but there's one step that is important, and that is to document. In other words, you update the change log. You update the change log, and if it is approved, then you execute it, right? And these things, as you can see, are all happening within the confines of monitoring and controlling. So each one of these areas, my friends, what makes the PMP exam rather interesting is you could dig deeper into all of these areas. Last but not least, we have closing, which is closing out either a phase or closing out the project as a whole. Whatever the case, you're going to close the project or the phase, okay? You could also generate a final report from the closing. Now, with that said, this aspect that we talked about in planning, I saw six chipmunks quietly roasting coffee, reading poetry stories. This is actually another way of breaking down the areas on the exam, if you will, or project management in general. Now, we don't call them groups. We call them areas. We call them knowledge areas. So this last piece that I want to go into here, we're going to call these knowledge areas. So let's have the knowledge areas over here. And these are, again, part of the PMI's legacy classic. This is classic. I mean, it's like, you, you know, you got a vehicle from the 60s and 50s and 40s. These, this is like vintage stuff. Now, I'm not saying knowledge areas are from the 50s. Yeah, they kind of grew from the 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, and, and they got to where we are today. In fact, if you wanted to argue, you could say from the early 1900s, you know, there's been the likes of Henry L. Gant and uh, Frederick Taylor and people like that responsible for scope and schedule coming to what it is today and many other names we won't go into. But the summary is this. In knowledge areas, you have this breakdown. Here's another mnemonic. I saw six Cubans quietly rolling cigars, really puffing smoke. It's a mnemonic for visual, okay? I'm not saying go get nicotine. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just giving you alternatives. So you could use a chipmunks or you could use the Cuban mnemonic. A lot of my students, for some reason, they love the Cuban mnemonic because it's quite visual. Okay. So we have integration. What is integration? Integration is the weaving together of all the elements of the project into one cohesive whole. 
and integration, there are seven things talked about. You develop the project charter. You develop a project management plan. You direct and manage the project work. You manage project knowledge. You monitor and control the project work. And you close, but before you close, you perform integrated change control, close project or phase. You can see this gets quite involved. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven things. Now, you need to know what you're doing in these seven things. You can't jump into your exam with some nebulous idea of integration as weaving together and that suffices. No, you got to go deeper, okay? So my advice to you, get the essentials book, open it up, and one by one, take down every one of these processes. I'm going to put a link below so that you got a document that can help you make sense out of the seemingly difficult information, make sense out of what seems to be nonsense. But I guarantee you, this is not nonsense. This is stuff I've practiced in the real world. This is how a lot of Fortune 500s operate. The next area is scope. And scope is all about defining what needs to be done and managing just that. Now, if we break scope down, there are six things. You want to, first of all, plan scope management. You collect requirements. You define the scope. You create the WBS. Validate scope is where your customer approves whatever has been created. And you have control scope. You have one, two, three, four, five, six things. Now let's pause for effect and zoom out. You see, it's like a map when you go to the mall and it says you are here. You see how deep this goes, my friends. This goes deep. And what I'm doing now, I tell you, you don't find a lot of videos that do this. So I want you to big this up by giving it a like. I want you to help me by subscribing to the channel. And I want you to share this with one of your friends that's pulling their hair out about this crazy exam because I'm giving you a method to the madness right now, okay? So we've talked about integration and scope. Very quickly, let's go into all the other areas. Schedule. Schedule management is all about the timeline. And when we talk about the timeline, it means you are defining the timeline. You are charting the course. There's six things you need to do here. We plan schedule management. We define activities, sequence the activities, estimate the activity durations. We develop the schedule, and then we control the schedule. One, two, three, four, five, six things. Then we move to the next area, which is cost. In cost, we plan cost management, we estimate cost, we determine the budget, and we control the cost. One, two, three, four things you do in cost. Then we move into the area of quality. Quality is pretty straightforward. There are three things we do. We plan quality management, we manage quality and we control quality. Plan quality management, we develop a plan for how to manage quality. Manage quality, we carry out the plan with quality audits and problem solving if things are going off. And then control quality is where the inspection happens from you, the performing organization. Now, control quality is very tightly linked with validate scope. Why is that? Why is this linkage? It's because in validate scope, your customer is checking the deliverable after you have done control quality where you checked the deliverable. So there is a method to this seemingly mad house. There's a way we do things and we're doing things for a reason. Next, we have resource management. Resource management, again, is another beastly one because there are six things that happen. And 
Before you exam, you just need to understand all six. We plan resource management. We estimate activity resources. We acquire resources. We develop the team. We manage the team. And we control the physical resources. Number one, we create a resource management plan. Number two, we estimate the human equipment, material supplies, and facility resources. Number three, we acquire those resources. Number four, we hone in on the humans and develop the team, build a team, synergize the team, mentor, train, coach, get them to optimum, and that never stops. It's not a one-time thing. This happens all throughout the project. Manage team, we give them feedback. We help guide them. Manage is all about helping the team get to its optimum. The word manage can be a bit misleading because we also espouse leadership ideas here to big the team up, to inspire, to motivate, to encourage, to direct, to keep team structure in place and things like that. Now, control resources is really all about the physical resources, making sure that they were used as planned, they were available as planned and things like that. Next one we have is communications. And in communications, it's very straightforward. We have three things. We plan communications management. What are we gonna communicate? Why and when, that's the first thing. Number two, we manage communications. In other words, we communicate. This is where we do the communications. And number three, we have monitor. Very important to know, it's monitor, not control. Monitor communications. And this is where we check to ensure communications are going according to plan. Now, when we dive into the world of communications a bit more, you need to understand how to think. If you are a project manager on a project and you have three people on the project, one, two, and three, you have how many channels between them? Obviously, it's three. But if you throw in a fourth person, how many channels do you now have? Well, you could count them, or you could use the formula. Number of channels equals to n times n minus 1 divided by 2. If you put in 4 times 4 minus 1 divided by 2, you have 4 times 3 divided by 2 right? 4 times 3 divided by 2, 12 divided by 2, and that's 6. So if you count them, you can see them. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. But you don't have to count them when you've got a formula. Now someone says, but Phil, is this formula going to be tested on the exam? No, it used to be. It's probably not going to be tested. But what this helps you understand is if you're a project manager with 13 people on your project, you could potentially have 13 times 12 divided by 2. Think about that. Lines of communication. Now, what should you do as a sensible project manager? Well, as a sensible project manager, this would probably give me 156, if I'm not mistaken, divided by 2. And that will give you 78. You have 78 potential lines of communication. Wow, that could be very problematic. So what could you do? You could stem the communication. You could limit it between various channels. That is what this is getting you to think about. Just to give you some context for what you might have heard about in project management space. The next one is risk. Risk is a beast. Risk has seven areas of concern. Number one, you want to plan risk management. Number two, you want to identify risk. Number three, you want to perform a qualitative risk analysis. Number four, you want to perform a quantitative risk analysis. Number five, you want to plan risk responses. Number six, you want to implement the risk responses. 
And last but not least, you want to monitor the risks. So this could be quite beastly to manage. Number one, create a plan for how to manage risks. Number two, identify the risks. Put them in a risk register where you have the risk, you have the ID of the risk, you have things such as the risk score. You know, you have the person assigned. You could say you have the risk owner, you have the risk action owner, and many things like that, which I won't get into here because this risk register is going to be populated all throughout the project, okay? So in here, qualitative risk analysis, that's going to be our risk score. Quantitative risk analysis, we could also have the expected monetary value, which we get from there, and that could be something else, on and on. The risk response, you could also plan the risk response. Are we going to accept? Are we going to transfer? Are we going to escalate? Are we going to avoid? Are we going to mitigate? What are we going to do if it's negative? All that stuff will also come into play. So this, my friend, is not a one-time thing. This happens all throughout the project. We're always thinking about risk. We should. Now, when it comes to quantitative risk analysis, be aware that quantitative is different from qualitative. Qualitative risk analysis is very similar to this, right? Qualitative risk analysis in the area of the risk score, we could have the probability rating and the impact rating. If the probability rating is a five and the impact rating is a two, then the risk score, and this is qualitative. Remember, this is qualitative. The risk score is going to be the probability rating times the impact rating, and that will give you a 10. If you had another risk of a 3 and a 5, then the risk score would be a 15. This score is qualitative. It is not absolutely quantitative. It's on a scale. That's not quantitative. That's qualitative. Now, quantitative is different. In quantitative risk analysis, we're talking about absolute probability and impact. So if there's a risk with a probability of happening being 30%, and let's say the impact from expert judgment or from historical discovery is 50,000, then what we call the expected monetary value, expected monetary value or risk magnitude, right, is going to be equal to probability times impact. But remember, this is in percentage times the dollars. So this is going to be in dollars, and this would be 15,000, right? That would be 15K. This would be your expected monetary value, or people would say exposure for that risk event, if you will. Now, this is a bit of a primitive way of looking at it. But for your exam, it's important you understand risk score is not quantitative. Expected monetary value is. That's a little bit deeper than what I would expect to find on the exam. But nonetheless, it is helpful to know it, okay? That's number four. Number five is planning risk responses. When you're planning risk responses, you have the option of positive risks being attacked or negative risks being attacked. And when I say attack, you got to go after these things, right? Especially if you've got a big old positive risk and you're just leaving it on the table, that's dumb. Go after it. So for positive risks, we have the easy approach, E-A-S-E-E. -E. And what does this mean? You can escalate, you can accept, you can share, you can exploit, or you can enhance. And that's what I call the easy mnemonic for positive risks. Or you could A-team it if it's negative. What do I mean by A-team? Well, again, you can avoid, 
that's the A. You could transfer. You could escalate. You could accept. Or you could mitigate. And that's what the A-team mnemonic is. But A-team is for negative, easy is for positive. And that's how you think of planning risk responses. Then number six, you would implement the risk responses. And number seven, you would monitor the risks to make sure that they do not go beyond what you initially thought. And if they do, you need to update your risk register, okay? Now, a very good view of what a risk register could look like is something like this, right? You have so many potential fields. I can't go into all of them here, but I can give you some ideas, right? So for your risk register, you could have your risk ID. It could be as simple as a 001, a 002 and stuff. Then you could have the risk cause, right? Then you could have the risk itself. Then you can have the risk effect. And these are things you want to discuss with the team. So when you have this kind of framework for risk, it just helps you do a thorough job. Let me give you a simple example. The risk is a fall on the job site. The cause is a wet floor. The risk effect described could be broken bones, injury, lawsuit, things like that, right? Things like that. And that's how you want to think when you are looking at your risk. Cause, risk, effect, not just the risk on its own, but it's the cause, the risk, and the effect. Okay, that's the general idea. Now, you get into the probability rating, the impact rating, and in my example, on a scale of, let's say, one to five, right? You could say it's a three and a four. And then you have the risk score. And that would be a 12, okay? Then you go a step further and you could, you don't always have to, but you could have the concept of quantitative risk analysis. So you can see this, this is becoming very, very intense. And that's why on, on a lot of projects, people try to stay away from a risk register because they're scared of how big it looks. But this is good stuff on on a, a predictive project, right? So we, we have the probability in percent. We have the impact in dollars. And then we have what we call the risk magnitude, which is the same as the EMV per risk. And then we could roll that up at the end, but you could have like a 0 0.4, which is a 40% probability. You could have uh, 20 million impact. And the risk magnitude in this case would be 8 million EMV. Then the next thing you should think of is the risk owner. You could have actually done this earlier. You could have a risk owner to own the entire thing. You could have a risk action owner who carries out the legwork, depending on what you decide to do, right? So we could have a risk owner and a risk action owner. But in addition to this, you want to have your risk response. Your risk response is what we've already looked at. So you could have the response, okay? and risk response and your risk response is going to be one of one of those things we looked at it's going to be one of the avoid transfer mitigate all that so 
risk response. I know some of you in your firms use this and you call it other things, but it's going to be the A team. Avoid, transfer, escalate, accept, mitigate. And you could say, okay, with this, we want to avoid, right? And you could have a description of the avoidance scheme. You could say, uh, clear uh, the floor and uh, designate someone to be there 24-7. Designate uh, a janitor. 24-7 at the entrance. And that's your avoidance strategy. Your avoidance strategy is to make sure there's always someone there such that the floor never is wet. Now you could say that's a mitigate, you could argue it, but assuming the person's doing a great job, that is an avoidance. So you could have a risk response description, right? Risk response description. All right, and then lastly, you want to have a way of tracking. You wanna have the status, right? And it could be could be open, it could be closed if that time window where the risk could happen has passed. So you wanna have your status, and then you could have another field where just uh, open comments. And you could have things like open commentaries from team members. You could have an update. You could have a lessons learned as far as that is concerned. There's so many things you could add to your risk register. But the summary, my friend, is you have a lot of fields to understand. So I'm hoping that going through risk with you is gonna help you see it in a different light. All right, so remember where we are. You are here. We have come all the way from up here, going over every one of these, going over scope, schedule, cost, and so on. You, you kind of get the idea now. You see the 40,000 foot view. See quality over there, resource, Right, communication. And now we are on to risk, which we're finishing up here. Risk. And now we're going over, we'll just move up here now, now that we've got most of it done. We'll go over here and talk about the next one, which is procurement. And procurement is very straightforward. Now let's just make sure I finish that off. I think you get the idea that monitor risk, you're going to be monitoring your risk register and everything else risk related and you update the risk register if you find anything risk related. So I think we're done with risk, okay? So we can conveniently go back over here to procurement. Three things, plan procurement management, conduct procurement, and control procurement. All right, so we have one, two, and three. Now, plan procurement management is, of course, planning. If you need to make or buy something for the project, if you need to buy, that's when you have the possibility of a procurement, and that's when you move into conduct procurement, which is getting the proposals back and assessing the proposals and selecting a seller, awarding the contract. And control procurement is where you are ensuring that whatever contract was signed is carried out. Uh, it's here we have things discussed like the fixed price, cost reimbursable, time and material contracts. This is where we talk about negotiation tactics. Um, this is where we talk about alternative dispute resolution, ADR. Um, if there's a lawsuit, if there's a claim made, we could use mediation or arbitration. And we call that alternative dispute resolution. There's a lot of stuff that we could talk about. Now, if you are looking to take this test and you really want to journey with me and get more meat on the bone, because I can't tell you everything here. I mean, we've been going for, we've been going for quite a while here, right? So if you want to study with me, go on down to tiny 
URL.com. And this is for on demand. If you want to study on demand with me, okay? tinyurl.com forward slash elite PMP. So you can see how deep I go, but I make it pragmatic so that you don't get lost. So think about your exam like this, right? This is below the surface. This is you over here. You could choose to go yay deep or you could choose to go where the oil is. That's where I'm going. So if you, if you want to be on a course where definitions are not just thrown at you and you're not just left high and dry and you have access to discuss, go on down to this link. If you want to be in a live class with me and you want to get training even beyond PMP, because after PMP, you need PDUs, right? If you want that, go on down to hpmexam.com because I have a program here that will help you get certified, but not just that, I will support you with 10 PDUs after you get certified and teach you how to be a real success. So this is for live via Zoom, right? And I've got a ridiculous steal going on right now that you will get PMP training plus success after the PMP, everything to do with how to navigate life after the PMP exam, how to be a real success based on the great work of my mentor, John C. Maxwell. If you want to be part of that, go to hpmexam.com and you'll have a lifetime support from this training I give you. You will not be lost. You'll have direction, okay? So those are two places I recommend you go if you want on demand or if you want live via Zoom, go to those places. All right. The final thing we're going to talk about here, my friends, is stakeholder. Stakeholder. Stakeholder management. There are four things that happen. Number one, identify stakeholders. It almost caught me there. <laughs> the next one is plan stakeholder engagement. The next one is manage stakeholder engagement. And the last one is monitor stakeholder engagement. So all the stuff I'm bringing to you here, my friends, this is all from memory. I'm not looking at any book to give it to you. And I believe you can do the same. You can get this level of depth, this level of understanding, but you should watch this over and over again. So I want you to bookmark it. I want you to hit like, I want you to subscribe. I want you to stay in zone because I'm telling you, this is more PMP training than a lot of classes give you. In fact, I want to wager that no class breaks it down like this because this is my signature breakdown of the exam. All right, so let's stay in sync. Let's stay in sync. So first thing here is identify your stakeholders that could be on the project, that are on the project. Number two, plan how to engage the stakeholders. So this will give you a stakeholder register. This will give you a stakeholder engagement plan. Manage stakeholder engagement is where you are engaging with the stakeholders. Right. This is where you are working with them. This is where they're working with you. This is where you're in sync and in synergy. And number four, monitor stakeholders. This is where you get good old feedback. This is where you get feedback to know if you are engaging them right, if they are happy about things. And if not, take that information, put it back into the pipeline, replan stakeholder engagement, do again and get feedback. And if the feedback is good, then sustain it, keep doing great things. So far, my friends, we've talked about agile and predictive, but wait, you know there's more. <laughs> there's more. We have to talk about hybrid and then I'll let you go. All right, let's talk about hybrid. There are four hybrid models talked about by PMI in the Agile Practice Guide. I want to show you these very quickly before you jump off the call today. So let's look at them one by one. Number one, we have agile development followed by a predictive rollout. And this could be used when you developed software using an agile approach, but the rollout is predictive. This is talked about in agile practice guide. Just look around pages 27 to 29 thereabouts. And you'll see what I'm talking about, right? So we have 
the agile development followed by a predictive rollout. Okay, let's go back if I can. Let's go back. Thank you. Zeet board. This is a very interesting tool. The second one is what I call an agile predictive sub, like a sandwich, right? You have agile and predictive, agile and predictive simultaneously for various parts of the project. Or it might even be one part of the project that is subdivided into agile and predictive, okay? That's number two. The third approach, when we talk about hybrid models, and hybrid models, by the way, a good way of ebbing people gradually into the world of agile. Number three is having a largely agile approach with pockets of predictive, a little smattering of predictive approaches and it could be anything such as, okay, we're using a largely scrum approach, but we are building in a concept of a WBS. So we're building in the concept of the schedule because it works with a specific project or it works for certain stakeholders. You see, there are no rules when it comes to combining these approaches. And you've got to be agnostic on your exam, you've got to be able to blend both, okay? Both in mind and in deed. The last one is a largely predictive approach and a smattering of some agile. So for example, imagine you're doing an approach that is largely based on the five process groups, but you throw in a little bit of some daily stand-up. Well, that's going towards Agile, or you throw in a concept of using some partly, uh, some little bits of a phase could be done in iterations, whereas the rest is done using a predictive approach. So that's what we're talking about, okay? And those are your four approaches to hybridization. With this understanding, my friends, you are almost done with everything you need to know for your PMP exam at this high level. But let's tweak this to talk specifically about PMP project management. To get a good idea of PMP project management, you need to understand the three exam domains and the three exam domains are people process and business okay now you saw how deep i went in all these areas my friends people at a high level is all about humans on the project, how they interact, how they synergize, how they overcome the concept of conflict. Conflict is big. Leadership is big. Management of the team structure is big. Coordination and facilitation, things like that. Emotional intelligence, you need to get good with those. For process, a lot of the process stuff is covered in Scrum, Kanban, and the process groups and knowledge areas. So process is 50% of your exam, and a lot of it is about the process groups, the knowledge areas, the frameworks, anything framework-related, right? The tools of project management. Uh, you could call them methods, you could call them models, you could talk about the artifacts, whatever you want to call them. Some people will call them inputs and outputs, and, and that's okay, but the exam is not hyper-focused on the names they call it. It's really, why am I using a business case? 
how does it differ from the benefits register? Why, why am I using a work performance report as I am taking a look at my change requests? What would that help me do? Would it help me if I took a look at a work performance report as I'm making a decision on change requests? How? How do I solve problems? How do I work with a team to find resource-related solutions or quality-related solutions? All of this stuff they're going to ask you, and that's why the people piece, which is 14 tasks, the process piece, which is 17 tasks, and the business piece, which is all about applying business thinking to project management, which is four tasks. This stuff cannot be talked about in a few minutes. For these domains, you need to go deeper. And that's why in the very beginning I said, if you want to study more with me, go on down to tinyurl.com forward slash elite PMP. Or if you want to be live, go on down to hpmexam.com. But I have another solution for you, you see. If you really want to go deep on the people, process, and business, I have a free solution for you. And this free solution, you can get it going down to the website. Just go on down to pmp.pmradio.org. If you go to pmp.pmradio.org, you can study with me for free for an additional 30 plus hours. That's right. I have over 30 hours of free videos over here. But all I ask from you is that you big up this video so that other people are aware of this treasure trove of free content. I call this 40 days to PMP exam success. In other words, I'm putting it to you that you can get certified in 40 days. If you follow step by step, if you have material that can help you, such as books and content, this is what I want you to do. Now, you might say, okay, Phil, but I don't have a study guide that can help me. Is it just videos I'm going to use? Now, while these videos are awesome, it would be really cool if you got the 40-day system in the book called PMP Exam Immersion. It's called PMP Exam Immersion. And it will immerse you into the world of the PMP. And this is also available if you wanted it. And I'm going to show you the link. And if you go on down to this link, immersion.pmradio.org, you can get this book called PMP Exam Immersion. This book comes with a workbook and other information that will help you go through the PMP exam content step by step by step over 40 days. And all you need to do is combine that with the other content that I showed you. And by the time you're done, you would have a very robust idea of the exam. You will have clarity. You will not feel like you're running all over the place. Because right now, I know a lot of folks feel that way. You feel, what am I doing? Where am I going? I have no clarity. But as I've shown you here, my friends, clarity on the exam is possible. It is possible. And, and when you come on the program, either in the book 
or in the classes, you will have more finesse, more class to your act as a project manager. So I hope you found this to be helpful. Hit the like button, subscribe so that we're in touch. Okay, and if you have any questions, please put them in the comments below. I wish you all the very best. You take care and bye for now.